Well, I'm going to be wrapping this up today, and what I want to share with you is a, a bit of a zoom back out from where we started and capture some of the broad themes that we've talked about over the last couple of days. Um, a little bit about me. I've been in full-time ministry for over 20 years. Initially, I started out on staff with crew. I worked at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, and uh, crew being a parachurch mission organization, um, we were on the cutting edge of like evangelistic methods. Crew always was very innovative in their techniques. And that's where I was initially trained in the methodology that I'm going to criticize today. Uh, it governed my early years of ministry with crew and it carried over into church planting. One of the big emphases was on contextualization which means um, adapting your message to your target audience. So whenever I went into church ministry and church planting here in Cincinnati, I was trained further in those same concepts through um, my Southern Seminary uh, training, through Acts 29 and the uh, training from other pastors there. Um, I heard about things like incarnational ministry, which was a, a bit of a buzzword, which means something like immersing yourself in the local culture to become Jesus to them. So what you do is you, you learn the stories of your local culture, you learn to speak their language, you learn to embody Christ for them and to them. And I wasn't the only one trained in this method. You've heard Chase talk about this. This was, this was the way a whole generation of church planters and pastors were trained to do ministry to reach the lost in your community. So back in 2010 is when we officially launched this church, and we were right at the crest of this missional church movement, church planting movement. And we uh, were supported by the Southern Baptist Convention. We're Southern Baptist Church. Uh, we're an Acts 29 church. And there's been enough time now that's passed for us to look back on my, my own ministry um, of 15 years at this church, but 20 years total, to look back on the past 20 years or so for myself and evaluate how is it going? How is it working out for us? So here's my assessment. I'll, I'll, I'll start with my assessment and then I'll unpack it for you. My assessment is that this approach has led the church broadly, evangelical church, it's led the church to compromise its witness and mortgage its future. And it happened, one reason, one reason that it's happened is because we've allowed worldly propaganda to infiltrate the church, particularly in our words, the words we speak. And if you, those of you who are preachers here, you spend enough time preaching through scripture, expository preaching. You do that for 15 years and it's going to become obvious to you that we don't talk as evangelical Christians like the Bible talks. We sound very different. And it's because we have learned intuitively to contextualize what the Bible says and repackage it, retranslate it whenever we're talking about it to other people. Why do we do that? We do that because, as you've already heard, we want to win people. We want people to know Jesus, to believe the gospel, to hear the gospel in language they can understand. And so we in our effort to win the world, what we end up doing is contextualizing the truth out of Scripture, contextualizing the truth out of the church. And so what I want to talk about today is how propaganda has infiltrated the church and what we can do about it. So I want to start, about, start by talking about the importance of words. 
the importance of words. God created the world with words, right? Genesis 1.1, he spoke the universe into existence by saying, let there be light. God reveals himself in words, Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments begins in Exodus 20, God spoke all these words. Whenever the Old Testament prophets speak, like Ezekiel, Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, usually in their prophecies, they say something along the lines of the word of the Lord, and then they will speak, but the word of the Lord. Jesus Christ, we learn in the New Testament, he is the fullness of God's word. John 1 verse 1, clearly uh, alluding to the book of Genesis, he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Salvation through Jesus Christ is communicated in words. Jesus said, Mark 13, or Mark 4.13, in the parable of the sower, very famous parable, he said, the sower sows what? The sower sows the word. 1 Peter 1.25, the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The church is established and sustained and expanded through words. We understand God, we understand the world, we understand salvation, we edify, disciple, grow in our faith uh, with one another through words. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. And at the end of all things, Jesus Christ will return to judge the world with words. Revelation 19.13 says, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Whenever we encounter this word in the Bible, the word word is not incidental. When God speaks, his words have power to create. Create the universe, create life within dead souls, create the church to grow the church. His words have the power to create. They have the power to create matter, even to create reality. The reality as we know it was spoken into existence because God is a speaking God. He reveals himself. And so we can't overestimate the power and the importance of words, the words that we speak. We need words to be able to think. Words are the building block of theology. You think about the word itself, theology. You have theos, God, logos, word. This is why the manipulation of words is such a serious issue. It's a big deal whenever we manipulate words because we're trying to tinker with reality. Merriam-Webster in 2019, the dictionary, do you know what the word of the year was in 2019? They. A pronoun. Four letters. Why did they choose that word? Like, oh, these, these big words are, you know, we're kind of bored with it. Let's, let's go back old school. Let's do a pronoun. No, it's like they are, in one way, they're reflecting a reality that they're just reporting on, but they're also creating a reality. They're creating the conditions which will perpetuate the reality that is contra to the reality that God created by his word. Let me read to you scripture and this, this scripture here is the outline for uh, the rest of where we'll go. It's a simple two-point outline. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm just going to read one verse, verse 2. And listen to what Paul says here. There's a positive, or there's a negative, and then there's a positive. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. But we have renounced, here's the negative, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But, here comes the positive, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So the negative, what Paul renounced, disgraceful, underhanded ways, uh, any kind of cunning deception, any tampering, manipulation with God's word. And the positive is what Paul committed to do instead of those things, which is an open statement of the truth. That's my talk. So I want to start with the negative, and this is two-thirds of what I want to say. Most of it is, is, a, is the negative diagnostic discerning side. And then a few brief comments at the end on the positive side. So I want to start with how words are used in the modern world. So let's discern the world for a bit. And my thesis is that the modern world is pregnant with propaganda. So there's this leftist ideology that is dominant in every part of society. And every part of society is expected to bend the knee to their agenda. The chief weapon of the left is the manipulation of language. It's propaganda. Uh, Doug Wilson has called it battle for the dictionary. So just as God created reality with words, leftists are now trying to create some new reality by manipulating words. Same idea. They're creating reality by the words that we use. You could say that they're playing God. So Saul Alinsky is one of the heroes of the left, and he famously made this quote. He said, he who controls the language controls the masses. And control, that, that's, uh, he's being honest there because control is exactly what they're after. They want to control how we think. They want to control what we value. They want to control the ethics we live by. They want to control how we're governed. So ultimately, what are they trying to create? I mean, they're trying to create an entire society that is created in their image and that is created or shaped by their moral vision. And so the Bible says it's evil to manipulate words. It's wicked to do this. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And now notice what he, he says. He says the word call. That's to name, to use language. Woe to those who use words to manipulate something evil so that it's regarded as good. And woe to those who use words and manipulate language to take something that is good and condemn it as evil. It's evil to manipulate language to, de to deceive people. There's a guy you've probably never heard of, um, but in academic circles, and I don't pretend to be an academic, but uh, his name is Jacques Ellul. Uh, he's a French um, writer, French Christian writer, um, and he wrote a book back in the late 60s called Propaganda. And so he had studied how propaganda works in different cultures. He studied, um, I mean, really around the world, but chiefly what would be familiar with us would be propaganda in the USSR, the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, propaganda used in Germany during the Nazi times, and then propaganda how it was used in the uh, United States. 
And his, the insights that he, that he came up with are uh, still applicable to us today. And so I want to just give you some examples of how Elul um, told us how propaganda works in a culture. So there are just three that I'll, that I'll highlight here, but the, he's got tons of them in his book. Um, so three, three chief ways that we could say that propaganda works in our society from Elul's book. And I'll read you some quotes as I go along. Um, here's the first one. is to borrow social capital. Borrow social capital, which means you take your message and you attach it to an agreed-upon positive social narrative. So whatever it is that you want to communicate, you need some vehicle to embed that into the culture. And one tactic of propaganda is to borrow the social capital of some other positive idea that's already in the culture and attach your idea to it, right? Here's his quote. Propaganda cannot create something out of nothing. It must attach itself to a feeling, an idea. It must build on a foundation already present in the individual. So here's an example. What's the cultural narrative around the civil rights movement? Is it positive? Yeah. Civil rights movement is positive. Because that was the time when African Americans were, uh, were, were recognized as equal. You know, men and women that, that, that share equal dignity, equal status, and should have an equal place in our society. Civil rights movement was, was a positive thing that's become a narrative of, we could even call it redemption in our culture, where, hey, like, this is a course correction that, that took place. So, since it's a, it's, it is culturally speaking, regarded as a positive thing in our society, it's ready-made for LGBTQ activists to attach their narrative to the civil rights movement. So they'll seize upon Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, heroic martyr status and cast themselves in his image. So LGBTQ people become oppressed sexual minorities fighting for justice and equality, right? Well, there's no history of slavery of like gay people. There's there's there is no past oppression that that we can point to like that is that would make sense for it to be associated with the civil rights movement. But it doesn't matter. It's a narrative that is convenient, and so they can take their agenda and their ideology and attach it to the civil rights movement to perpetuate it in society. And people fall for it because it feels righteous to support a righteous cause, right? We want meaning in our lives. We want to feel like our lives matter for something, that we're doing something significant, that we're playing our part in society. And so this gives us a narrative that we can all rally around. We want to fight for the equality of these LGBTQ people just as our parents' generation did in the civil rights movement. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Appeal to emotions. Appeal to emotions. This one's great. This is so good. Propaganda focuses on emotions because they are more deeply embedded in the unconscious mind. Emotions are things that, that more happen to us a lot of times. We don't choose, you know, I think, uh, I haven't felt sad in a while, so around 2 o'clock today, I want to feel sad for about an hour. No, no, emotions are more reflexive. They're just spontaneous things that well up within us, given whatever circumstances that are happening. And so for that reason, they're subconscious. They're unconscious. They're, they're not things that we think about so actively. And yet, emotions govern so powerfully the way we think. 
It can be like a reality distortion field around our thoughts and our behaviors that affect us. And if we don't have discipline over our emotions, if we lack self-control, then we're like a city without walls and able to be broken into, as the book of Proverbs says. So as conservative Christians, we value truth, right? We value truth. And here's where we're naive. We naively assume everybody else does too, and they don't. But what is most natural to us is, what is truth? Well, the Word of God is truth. Let's look to the Word of God, the words of the Word of God, and let's pull from that the truth that we need to live our lives. So we appeal to logic, to rational thought, uh, in order to make sense of the world. We make rational arguments, truth claims. Meanwhile, the leftists are telling stories, and they're much better at it than we are. Stories embed subtle messages in the subconscious mind, and it shapes value. It even shapes desire. Hollywood knows this. They're, they're the best at it. And because Hollywood knows this, the morals and the values of California ultimately become the morals and values of the nation because they tell our stories. They tell the stories of our culture. Here's another example uh, the Nashville shooter. Um, what are the facts about the Nashville shooter? What is the truth of what actually happened? Well, a trans woman, so a female woman, targeted Christian children for violence and executed them. That's facts. What's the narrative? The narrative, the story, is this poor woman was rejected by her conservative Christian parents, she's a victim of hate, and they turned her into this criminal. They cast her as the victim, as, as, though, she, as though she was the victim of these forces over which she had no, no control. Unfortunately, facts don't win the day, do they? Facts don't win in our culture. Emotions do. And that's why story is such powerful propaganda. All right, here's the, here's the great quotes from Elul. There's, I want to read two of them to you. Elul says, a distinction between propaganda and information is often made. Information is addressed to reason and experience. It furnishes facts. Propaganda is addressed to feelings and passions. It is irrational. To be effective, <laughs> to be effective, propaganda must constantly short-circuit all thought and decision. He is absolutely right about that. And, th and this man is a Christian. He's not pro-propaganda. He's, he's not a, a in favor of it. He's saying, like, we need to discern it. We need to understand it. Here's another quote. Propaganda creates compliance through imperceptible influences. It must operate on the individual at the level of the unconscious. He must not know that he is being shaped by outside forces. This is one of the conditions for the success of propaganda. But some central core in him must be reached in order to release the mechanism in the unconscious which will provide the appropriate action. And that's, that is the goal. The goal is action, not truth, 
The goal of even stirring up the emotion is action, and that's the, the, third, the third way that propaganda works. Propaganda drives toward activism. Activism. There's a reason why we call them social justice warriors, not social justice believers or social justice thinkers. No, they're social justice warriors because they really are warriors. They're fighting a holy war. They're involved in a cultural jihad where they're animated by religious zeal and it is waged through political activism. They believe in a great commission. Go ye forth into all the world and proclaim the gospel of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They have an eschatology, this humanist utopia grounded in their perverted moral vision. And they have a playbook. They're not constrained by Western Christian morality of truth, righteousness, justice, fear of God, holiness. They're not constrained by any of those things. All they know is when at all costs. Jacques Ellul, one last quote. He said, the skillful propagandist will seek to obtain action without demanding consistency, without fighting prejudice or images, by taking his stance deliberately on inconsistencies. Think about how destabilizing it is whenever you're watching the news and you know they are lying about that. You're like, they are lying? How dare they? How can they possibly bold-faced lie like they are? That is a propaganda technique. It is taking a stand deliberately on a lie or an inconsistency that is demonstrably an inconsistency, and it destabilizes you. It, it, it causes you to, get, to, to be dispirited, to be demoralized, to be defeated, discouraged, because they can get away with it because they have the power to do so. Who's going to hold them accountable? If you Twitter warriors? Nah. Nobody's going to pay attention to them. As far as public perception goes, consistency is overrated because truth is not their goal. They're not motivated by logical co coherence. They're not motivated by rational thought or truth. All that matters is advancing their political agenda. And so through their words and the stories they tell and the framing of the news, they're creating this reality that is made in their image that they want. And folks, this is the pool that we're all swimming in all the time. Every day, this is the spirit of the age, or scholars call it the zeitgeist, German word for spirit of the age. But every day, we dine at the table of leftist propaganda, and we drink the wine of leftist propaganda. It's in our TV shows, it's in our movies, it's in our music, it's on the news, it's in our schools, it's in our workplaces, it's in our government, it's in our technology, it's in our social media, and I would argue it is in the church. How can it not be? It's everywhere. How can it not be unless we are actively resisting it? So let's talk about how this has infiltrated the church. Much propaganda has been smuggled into the church under the winsome guise of reaching the lost. We've already heard this developed in other talks, and I'm, I'm glad that, that we're able to, to, to highlight that in this conference. But this idea of reaching the lost is this Trojan horse that, that has opened the door for propaganda to be smuggled in. At the academic level, the word is contextualization. I've mentioned this already. And that's the word that I want to use to describe it. And solid, conservative, Bible-believing Christians and pastors and churches, we get sucked into it 
because of the Great Commission impulse that Jesus gave to us. Jesus gave us this mandate to reach the world, to proclaim the gospel, to, to share the gospel with people. And because that is our narrative, that is our, the cultural narrative that is embedded in the church, then that desire and that impulse, leftist propaganda can attach itself to it, and we, it drives itself right on into the church. And I know this because I'm one of them. This is part of my own story. I went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I took all the classes. I read all the books. I also read the blogs and the podcasts. I trusted my training, and I built my ministry on these methods. But the more I contextualized from a genuine desire to reach the lost, I became increasingly unsettled. There was a lot of things I would say, man, like, that just doesn't sit right. That doesn't feel right. Like, what am I missing? And, I, and it caused me to even doubt a lot of my own thoughts. I'm like, well, the, the experts, they, they know how to do this. They're all saying this is what you got to do. You've got to talk this way. You've got to act this way. And that's how you reach the lost. And they know better because they're the experts. They're the experienced ones. I'm this, this young church planner. What do I know? I need, I need to listen to people and be humble and follow the lead of those who have gone before me. And, I, and so I, I did the things that I was told to do. But there was something that just this growing sense of being unsettled that, that took place within me. And I just kept thinking. I'd say, well, we're, we're here to reach the lost. But what are we reaching them with? What are we reaching them to? And what's the cost? And whenever I started asking these questions of other people, what I would hear is like, well, we don't want to offend non-believers. So what we want to do is we want to build a relationship with them. So like, here's the ideal scenario. Ideal scenario, we're going to build a relationship. Do life together with these non-believers. Spend time together, build a relationship, go to ball games together, hang out, spend time together. And then that magical moment will arrive when Jesus just like, hangs this softball right out in front of the plate and you crank it over the fence and they become Christians. That's the ideal thing that we're all expecting to happen. The way it actually happens is build relationships with non-believers And that's all we do. <laughs> we never actually get around to sharing the gospel. We never actually end up saying the thing because we're always saying, ah, this isn't the right time. This isn't the right time. The right time will be here soon enough. Uh, there, there's a kid crying. Uh, well, I've, I've got dinner in the oven. This isn't the right time. And so we're always afraid of, of, of offending somebody. And in, in the preaching context, I was told things like, well, if you... There are certain things that you've got to be really careful when you preach about it. You've got to be careful when you preach about holiness, sin, judgment, wrath, hell. If it's not winsome, then you run the risk of offending the non-believer and spoiling that one opportunity that we had. And I'm thinking, they're here in church. What greater opportunity could there be to share the gospel with them? To, 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 to lay it all out clearly before them. But I was saying, well, no, they, they need to come for some period of time. You know, maybe six months, a year, but, you know, when the moment is right. But the, the right moment never arrives. And what ends up happening, and I've noticed this enough times, like I've seen this pattern play out multiple times. The people that are coming around that are not Christians, that are hanging out in the church, eventually, whatever it, the idol of their heart is, will be exposed. And that's when they leave. 
why not expose it early? Why not make it clear early? Because when you hit the idol, that's when they're going to flare up. That's when they're going to get upset or offended. So what good does it do to just be perpetually kicking the can down the road? So after all of this reflection, I came to the conclusion that the way we're told to do ministry is actually tampering with God's word. The very thing Paul explicitly says, I refuse to do that thing. I'm not going to be underhanded. I'm not going to be cunning. I'm not going to tamper with God's word. So I saw that this was, this was harming the church, not, not necessarily the mission of the church. This was harming the sheep. We're starving the sheep in order to reach the goats. So a lot of churches won't preach against homosexuality or socialism or critical race theory because they want to be missional. That is Andy Stanley's problem. He's like, what, do we, what can we eliminate from Christianity in order to reach the lost? What do non-Christians get offended about? And let's eliminate that. And we're seeing they're eliminating, well, like three-fourths of the Bible so far when they unhitched the resurrection from the Old Testament. But now they're unhitching the Bible itself to where the gospel is just this story hanging out in midair that has no words, no content, nothing substantive. It's just a story because once you get into the Bible, you might get into things that would offend people. That's what it leads to. It produces that kind of result. So the sheep in our pews are drinking in these poisonous ideologies of the left in our culture all week long, and then they come into church on Sunday, and they're not receiving a meal from God's word. They're not being fed. And some pastors will excuse this, so thinking like, well, it's not like we've got Marxists in the pews here. It's like nobody I know is in danger of becoming gay. So why do we got to talk about this? Well, if they're not preaching about it, guess who is preaching about it? Everybody else. 24-7, all the time. Everywhere. And once these things became clear to me, I was like, I've got to unwind this. We, we, we can't, I cannot continue doing ministry this way. I will stand before God and I will answer to God Almighty for these sheep. And my testimony before the Lord is like, I didn't want to offend the non-believers that aren't here because they never became Christian. I want to tell the Lord, I fed your sheep, which is exactly what Jesus told Peter to do in John 21. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Well, in 2001, there was an article that Tim Keller wrote. And I just want to be clear. It's like, we've joked around and whatnot. I'm not a hater of Tim Keller. I respect him. There's a lot that I've learned from him. I think that Tim Keller is a leader whose time, who was a man of his time and who, who had some good resources and help for his time, but I don't think his method is what we need in our time. But in this article called The Missional Church, he laid out his, in article form, an evangelistic methodology, missional strategy. There were five points in it, and I, I want to talk about the first two. The first point was speak in the vernacular of the target audience. Use their words, in other words. Speak in the vernacular of the target audience. Use their words, use their symbols, and avoid Christian aid jargon. That's one. Two, enter into the culture's stories and retell them in the gospel. You enter into their story, and then you retell the stories of the culture through the gospel. So, you learn the stories of your target culture. What are the, what's the narrative? 
What's the story? What are, what are the aspirations and dreams of your target culture? And then you enter into that and you, you kind of redirect the, the terminus point of their story to show that ultimately, is, and that's where you get things like Jesus is the true and better fill in the blank. You know? uh, it, it, it can, it's, this, it's, it's, a, it's a rhetorical tactic. So you, as you enter in, you show them how it points to Christ. And so here's an example. Um, people want the American dream. But we are eternal beings and we were made for another world. And the American dream cannot satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Only a relationship with God can do that. You see that? So what's the cultural narrative? The American dream. What do we do? Well, we enter into that cultural narrative and we redirect it and point it to where it is fulfilled in Christ. That's, that's how it works. And it works. And what I just said is, is not bad. And it, it, it's got use. It's got value. It'll preach. It's effective. But only in the hands of a skilled practitioner, which most of us aren't. Most of us don't have the tools, the intellect, the training, the theological acumen, the cultural skill, the relational skill to be able to uh, just take somebody else's cultural narrative and show how it is fulfilled in Christ. It is difficult work to do. And what ends up happening is it ends up leading to this watered down, unclear, powerless gospel. And for most people in most churches, it does more harm than good. And it leads ultimately to syncretism, where Christianity loses its distinctiveness. And it just sort of blends into whatever the cultural flavor is. And the fatal flaw is that it puts the culture on equal footing with Christian truth. It has to do that to some degree. The priorities and the stories and the words of culture, they get to set the agenda for the church because that's how we reach them. We reach them by speaking their vernacular. We reach them by telling their stories. So we want to reach them. But what do you do when you, when you do those things? You are letting the world's priorities and stories and symbols dictate the agenda, the message, the shape of the message. So what happens now is that contextualization can start happening in reverse where we are promoting the world's agenda, but we're using Christian language to do it. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, in my view, the COVID vaccine is a matter of conscience. Um, I don't think it's, I mean, I, we, we've, we know enough now to know that the COVID vaccine, the problems with it. Um, but if, if a Christian wants to get it, that is their business. And if a Christian doesn't want to get it, that's their business. Um, it, they will answer to the Lord, but it's, it's a matter of conscience. But there are some that are very aggressive in the way they promote it, push it, guilt people, arm twist, manipulate for whatever reason. But a lot of Christians have strong objections to it because some of the vaccines were developed from aborted babies, the, the fetal tissue of aborted babies. So uh, you might have seen this. David French, Russell Moore, and a guy I'd never heard of, Curtis Chang, they started this organization called Redeeming Babel, ironic. Um, but they started this organization as a resource for Christians. And they're like, hey, use this, use this material in your small groups and in your churches and whatnot. So I want to read you a quote from uh, the video that Curtis Chang recorded. And this, this video shows us what reverse contextualization looks like. He's entering in to the cultural narrative and he's reorienting it, but it, it, it's actually telling, it's, it's allowing the cultural narrative to enter into the Christian story to where we're telling the world story in Christian vernacular. 
He said this, the COVID vaccine, and he said it so sweetly. He was so earnest. The COVID vaccine is an image of redemption. Yes, the vaccine may have a distant, notice that, that's a manipulative word, a distant origin story in abortion. Imagine saying that. Yeah, this has a distant origin story in white supremacy. <laughs> we don't, we're we're trying, to, trying to pull away from it. So the vaccine may have this distant origin story in abortion, but that past has been reworked and redeemed into something that saves life. We can point to the vaccine and say, Jesus' redemption is like that. Whose story are you telling, bro? Is that the Christian story? Or is that Jesus is a vaccine? Like, what's the true and better <laughs> going on here in this story? It's like, it's, it's telling the world's story. The world story, which is trying to authoritarianly, that's not a word, but I just made it up, authoritarianly impose this mandate on everybody to take the vaccine, and it's aping Christian language and Christian symbols and Christian stories to manipulate and strong-arm people into following through with the world's agenda. That's reverse contextualization. It requires you to assume some validity on the part of the culture you're trying to reach, But the more secular and godless and hostile the culture is to the Christian faith, the less that's a viable method. Now, a lot of people will point to Acts 17. You might have heard this. Acts 17, this is Paul at the Areopagus, where he said, Men of Athens, I see that you're very religious. It was a winsome opening to his speech. And he said, I see that you uh, worship all these gods. Well, let me declare to you the real God. And people will say, that's the model. That's the way we should do it. Well, let me tell you something. Acts 17 is a neutral world strategy because it assumes like literally in the text, you see an open marketplace of ideas. It says there that everybody's here discussing something new. They want to hear new ideas. They want to consider and weigh new ideas. That's a neutral world strategy. But people will say, that's how you, that's how you do it. But we don't live in that world. We don't live in an Acts 17 world. We live in an Acts 19 world. You know, the Acts 19 world? where Paul rolls into Ephesus and he preaches the gospel and some people start believing and they start throwing out their idols and it throws the city into a riot to where they were like gathering around in this riot, angry, shouting, trans rights are human rights, trans rights are human. Oh, no, that's not what it says. It's a great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's what they were saying. But they were, there was this angry mob that was shouting down Paul to where it's like he barely escaped. That's the world we live in now. And if anybody's ministry model does not have at least the possibility that words that you speak would lead to that reaction, then it's an insufficient ministry model. People will say, well, contextualization is unavoidable. You've got to contextualize. How can you translate the Bible without contextualizing? You have to contextualize to the language. Here's the thing. What do Bible translators do? Bible translators, it's a discipline, and their aim is to preserve the author's original words, intent, and message, not to alter it. Bad translations tamper with God's word, and they alter and distort the author's intent. Who in here preaches expositorily through the message? Here. Why don't we preach through the message? Because it is over-contextualized. 
It's not a Bible. It is a paraphrase. It is a, it is a sermon in a way. It is, uh, what's the guy, Eugene Peterson? Is that the guy that wrote it? it, it it's like his sermon. But it's, it is something where the, the original meaning has been altered and it's been updated in such a way that the original power has been emptied out of it. The message is more readable than, let's say, the King James, but the King James is more powerful. And the reason is simple. The King James assumes God's word shapes the culture. The message assumes the culture shapes the word. It has no power. And that's why none of us preach from it. It's, 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 a, it's got a little niche market of people that are just maybe just learning the Bible or um, they don't want to maybe a lower reading level, but it's, it's not the word of God. It's not the power. And so these modern missional ministry models, they sacrifice the distinctiveness of the Christian message. And that's what's happening in the modern church. What's happening in the model church, modern church, from my observation, is that we are the ones that are being contextualized. We're letting the culture set our agenda to reach the lost, but we're the, we are the ones that are being reached. In the world's eyes, we're the lost ones. We're the holdouts. We're the ones that need to be reached by their secular, godless, pagan gospel. So in our pulpits, we'll use the credibility of the Bible and of the Christian faith to promote the agenda of the culture. And what we need to realize is that contextualization always produces cultural relativism. How do you contextualize to Sodom? How do you speak in the vernacular of Sodom? You know, we know like in modern times, the LGBTQ plus agenda, it's a totalizing worldview. It's, it's, an, it's a narrative that will take no prisoners. There is no compromise. They have to have complete control. How do you contextualize? How do you enter into and retell LGBTQ stories? Don't, don't even think about it. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you what, some of what they do is like, well, um, David is gay and Jonathan are gay lovers. I saw, I saw this. I literally saw this the other day. David and Jonathan were, uh, were in a gay marriage. They were actually married. I'm like, that's so stupid. Like, what in the world are you thinking? It's like you have been totally captured by the liberal agenda. We actually had a guest preacher once from this pulpit warn our church about the dangers of homophobia. You're like, homophobia? I don't, I don't remember that. You know, it's not in here. Because it's a, it's a cultural sin. It's a sin that is defined by the culture and I'm like, why are you talking about homophobia from this pulpit? It's because there's credibility in this pulpit. Because what people normally hear is the word of God expounded. And so it, if anybody's not discerning or doesn't know better, they might think, yeah, homophobia, boy, that's awful. Whatever it is, it's awful. So we've mor- we mortgage our future in the attempt to win the lost. And I think it's just because we're embarrassed of what the Bible says because it's countercultural. When you're embarrassed of what God's word says, you will contextualize God's words out and you'll put your own words in. Very quickly, four results of reverse contextualization. One, you lose the ability to discern evil in the culture you're trying to reach. Two, you relativize your own beliefs and values as merely the products of Euro-Western culture. You say, What we believe is not from the word of God. What we believe is merely a cultural byproduct from Christendom. And we are free to recontextualize to whatever culture we want to. Number three, we fail to develop a distinctly Christian vision for our own culture. And we think it's the righteous thing to do. 
And four, we end up telling the wrong story using the wrong language to the wrong audience, using the wrong words. So we lose our distinctiveness. Salt loses its taste. It's not good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled. That's not the way. What the modern world needs is what Paul said. All the stuff I've just been talking about, Paul says, I renounce. It's disgraceful. It's underhanded. It's cunning. It's tampering with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we'll commend ourselves to everyone's conscience on the side of God. That's the antidote. What we need is bold, clear, courageous, distinctively Christian statement of the truth. That's the only way. Whatever a valid version of contextualization would look like in the future, it, it, it's got to be anchored in this open statement of the truth. It cannot be a cover for cowardice. I've got, a, very quickly, let me give you practical points of virtues of clear speech. Virtues of clear speech, I've got seven of them, and they're short. Number one, whenever possible, use the Bible's words. If there's a Bible word to describe the phenomena that you're wanting to describe, then use that word. Let the power of God's word sing out in the ways that you speak. And don't burden yourself with trying to retranslate the Bible because 99% of the time, you're going to end up softening it. That's our temptation because we don't want to offend anybody. But the Bible's words are, are direct. We need to sound more like the Bible when we speak. Number two, be as direct and honest as you can be. Be as direct and honest as you can be. And one way to do that is to eliminate qualifiers. Adverbs is a chief qualifier. We want to overqualify and nuance. And let me just tell you, this is my big temptation. Like, I'm like, now here's what I'm not saying. Now don't misunderstand. I mean, that's, that's, that's a natural temptation because I love being understood clearly. I really like when people, it's like, if you're going to hate me and be offended to me, I want you to know exactly what you're hating me and are offended at me for. But we have to get used to the fact that the people that we're talking to, they're not motivated by rational thought. If they're going to get offended, they're going to get offended no matter how winsomely or nice or qualified you say it. Something, Michael talked about this yesterday, something is going to be an association for them or there's going to be some emotional reasoning going on. It doesn't matter what you say. What's happening is going on inside of them. Being misunderstood is part of the deal. Get used to it. Number three, use concrete words. Concrete words. Avoid abstractions or cliches euphemisms. Wade and I, we've, we've got this thing on our podcast where we talk about sophistry, which is uh, finding clever word tricks to avoid an ugly truth. And I think now that we've been doing it, it's like I see it all the time. It's, it's not murdering an unborn child. It is a clump of tissue that is uh, being extracted. It's, it's not... Well, I won't use the graphic language for homosexual behavior, but it's, uh, these, are, these are gay, these are loving, affirming relationships. Love is love. 
We, we use these words to soften hard or ugly truths that we don't want to face because we don't want to live in reality. We want to use words to create this fiction, this unicorns and pixie dust reality, this fantasy, because this real world is hard to live in. And whenever somebody speaks directly to that reality, it's hard to swallow. And so Christians, like, open statement of the truth, we got to cut through the noise by using concrete words. Number four, be humble. And what I really mean by that is don't try to sound smart. It's going to get in the way of clear speech. So what I'm really trying to say is science has shown that when one tries to elevate their appearance of intellect, they will often cite sources and they will appeal to the expert. No, don't do all that garbage. I just don't try to sound smart. I just, just here's, here's what I think. And, and that is a discipline. It is a discipline. It's not like it, some people come by it naturally. Many of us have been so conditioned to use sophistry and euphemism to bury what we're really trying to say. Do you believe homosexuals are in sin and will go to hell? Yes. Well, I would say it's, it falls short of God's ideal. Bullcrap. White supremacy is less than God's best for your life. It doesn't contribute to human flourishing. Bullcrap. We only do this about the, the non-regime approved sins. We bury the truth. Okay. Number five, avoid therapeutic language to talk about sin. You don't struggle with pornography. You're sinning by watching people have sex on your smartphone. You're lusting after women or after men or whatever else you might lust after. It's not a struggle. You're in sin. So say it. And there's power in saying it. There's power because you're not hiding anything. It is the most humble and an honest confession. But we, like, we, love, we love ourselves some therapeutic words because therapeutic words cast us in the role of victim. This is something that happened to me. No, it's like you, you, you did this. You, this was your choice. So we, we use therapeutic words to soften what we want to say. All right, uh, number six, practice saying out loud what everybody else is already thinking. And it is a practice. And if it's really hard, script it. There have been times when I knew I needed to say something really difficult to somebody. And I literally wrote, wrote out, I'm going to say these exact words. And I read them over and over again until they were in my mind. I would practice them. Like, I need to, I need to say it. And so, if it's, if it's something that is an uncomfortable truth but everybody already knows it. Practice saying that part out loud. And I'll tell you who's really good at this is comedians. Comedians, good comedy works because you have to have the real reality that everybody lives in as a point of reference against which you can demonstrate an absurdity, right? So good comedy relies on pointing out absurdities of real life and we can laugh about it. So like, like if you're ever laughing at a comedian, you're like, oh, that's so true. It's because you've lived the thing they're talking about, and they are saying 
the obvious thing that nobody else says they're saying it out loud and pointing it out in a way that is obvious and the surprise of it is funny. But absurdity only exists in a world of rules and norms and that's what comedy is about. That's what they joke about. So good comedians say the quiet part out loud and if you're laughing, that means that you know it's true. You're recognizing it. The left isn't funny anymore because they are the joke. They are the absurdity that everybody else should be laughing at. But, but we're too polite and winsome to laugh about it, which I think is ridiculous. It is, it is an absurdity, and we should be willing to say it, have a joke about it, and say it out loud. And it's a powerful way to defeat their cry-bully tactics. All right, here's the last one. Have courage. Be strong and courageous. There are admonitions in Scripture to do this. None of anything of what I've said matters if you're a coward. You might be familiar with what C.S. Lewis said. Courage is not its own virtue. It's not a standalone virtue. Rather, courage is the form of every virtue at its testing point. So the virtue of directness, honesty, plain speech, when that is tested, which it will be tested, that's where courage, the virtue of courage can be manifest. And that's why we need courage to do it. If Christians simply had more courage, a lot of these other issues would take care of themselves and we wouldn't need to have a con- conference about it. People are going to hate you for one thing or another. It might as well be for speaking the truth. Yesterday's battles, they had their own heroes. Praise God for them. But yesterday's battles aren't our battles. You're not courageous for condemning slavery or racism. Everybody acknowledges those, the sinfulness of those things. It's not courageous to fight yesterday's battles. We need courage for today's battles. And today's battles is where the testing point will be. And the virtue of clear speech will be tested, and that's where you need courage. I'm personally pretty confident that what we're talking about, somebody alluded to this yesterday, but I'm I'm pretty confident that what we're talking about here at this conference is ahead of its time. I think there will be, you know, who knows, like Gospel Coalition 2030, 2035, we'll do this clear speech in a confused age <laughs> featuring Russell Moore and uh, David French, you know, and they'll be like talking all about uh, this because it will become the regime approved virtue that will be needed at that time. But right now it's, it's ahead of its time. And the first guy through the wall is the one that takes the arrows, sadly. And if you do this, you'll be the one taking arrows. And I'm not saying being obnoxious blowhard all the time. We've talked about that, but I'm saying like there will need to be courage for you to say what needs to be said when it needs to be said. For you, the courage might be just to say the hard thing to your kids. For some of you men, it might be saying a hard thing to your wife. <laughs> That's what take a lot of courage for a lot of you. It's like, it's like you're, you're terrified. A lot of people are terrified otherwise, but that's, that's where we need courage. But I'm confident that eventually this idea will be vindicated. And we're the ones, we're the first ones through the wall. Stay faithful, stay true, speak clearly, boldly, courageously in this confused age.